It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where the weather today is exactly like it was 20 years ago. Crisp, refreshing air under a clear, light blue sky. It's bringing a lot of us back. And over the next hour, we will explore how secure America is today, the evolving threats that we are facing, and how the events of September 11, 2001 prompted policy changes in this country and started America's longest war. We'll talk about it with Congressman John Katko, Republican from New York, the ranking member on the House Homeland Security Committee. Later, our conversation with former Pennsylvania Governor Mark Schweikert, who rose to that position when Tom Ridge was tapped by President George W. Bush to run a new department called Homeland Security. And the panel today, classic panel with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. And thank you for being with us today as we prepare to mark the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Tributes planned in New York, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and here in Washington, D.C. And we're joined now off the top by the ranking member, the top Republican on the House Homeland Security Committee, Representative John Katko of New York. Congressman, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Great to be back, my friend. You have a special view from your perch on Homeland Security, and I wonder what you can tell us about increased chatter ahead of this 20th anniversary. Are there any credible threats against the U.S. this weekend? Well, I, uh, specific threats, no, but a general increase in chatter uh, based on what's happened in Afghanistan is definitely happening. Uh, before Afghanistan blew up on us, uh, there was some chatter about the anniversary of 9-11 and uh uh, that's that's to be expected from the bad guys. But what happened after Afghanistan fell apart for the U.S., I think uh, a lot of people that had been somewhat uh, dormant in their uh, hatred of the U.S., uh, I think are feeling a little bit more invigorated. That's what we're seeing online. And I think that uh, so there is a, a heightened alert, uh, nothing specific, but certainly some heightened concern that uh, people may be emboldened to um, do more harm to the U.S., given what's happened in Afghanistan. If it's not specific, do you take it seriously? Yeah, we, we absolutely do. And I think um, uh, when I was down in New York City spe- uh, yesterday speaking with a police commissioner and then, the, you know, the head of their intelligence unit, he all said the same thing. 
they're always on a heightened sense of alert in New York City, but it's particularly so in this anniversary and given what's happened in Afghanistan. So yeah, there's there's things to be concerned about, but uh, you know nothing specific. Uh, so so that's a good thing as well. I saw that you were in New York this week meeting with first responders, and I wonder as you think back twenty years, Congressman, how much progress we've made in communicating threats from Washington to the men and women who are protecting our cities and towns on the ground. Well, yeah, as you may know, uh, the the main uh, conclusion of the 9-11 Commission was that there was a dis- dis- terrible, despicable failure of communication between uh, the frontline workers, uh, you know, the emergency workers and the intelligence community and law enforcement community. That lack of uh, synergy is gone. It's uh, they, they have what's called Joint Terrorism Task Forces all over the United States. They work. Uh, you have federal, state, local embedded together. And the exchange of information, both uh, within this country and internationally, is infinitely better than it was 20 years ago. I'm sure you're asked this frequently. Are we safer now than we were on September 11, 2001? You know, it's, it's not an easy question to ask, and I'm not being coy. Uh, from a communication standpoint, when there's a threat been identified and uh, being able to uh, respond to it in real time, yes, infinitely safer. But um, has a threat landscape changed dramatically? Yes, it has. You have uh, you have Afghanistan reinvigorated with te- uh, possible terrorist elements with al-Qaeda embedded there. And ISIS now uh, has a foothold there. You have uh, a wide-open southern border, which we've never had before, which is going to be, which is a real problem. And no one suspected terrorists are coming across that border. You add to that threat dynamic uh, the, the the very serious uh, cyber cyber threats that we have. Um, we know China has been a very bad actor in that regard, and Russia as well. And the the cyber threat is a very new and very serious threat going forward. Uh, and sometimes it didn't didn't even exist 20 years ago, quite frankly. So, uh, um, you know, the, the threat matrix is very different, much more complicated. Um, and uh, it's still, to me, quite significant. And that's why us on Homeland Security have a very solemn mission to try and do all we can to, to uh, help our frontline uh, security folks uh, get have all the tools they need to get things done. Yeah. You know, we didn't have 20 years ago was the Department of Homeland Security, of course, Congressman. We didn't have a TSA. I wonder, based on what you just said, what we need now. Should we be building new apparatus or changing our posture based on these different threats? Well, we are changing our posture to some extent, and that changes. Um, uh, I think TSA has done a very good job of keeping the airlines safe and the airways safe, and we need to make sure that they always have the updated technologies at their disposal, like 3D technology for bags and what have you. Uh, as the bad guys try and get more sophisticated, we, we need to be as well. Uh, with Homeland Security, uh, we need to do more with respect to cybersecurity in, in particular. We do a very good job with the anti-terrorism stuff. There's more we can do. We heard that this week when we're at ground zero and we had a hearing uh, there. Uh, you know, the grants that we give to local EMTs, local frontline emergency workers, need more of those and we got to deliver. But the cybersecurity is something that we're woefully lacking in, in my opinion. And uh, we're trying to build up the cybersecurity and infrastructure security component of Homeland Security to make it beefy enough to be able to deal with the multiple threats and uh I got to give kudos to this administration. They've had they they put really good people in the right spots in the cybersecurity arena, and I think that's really helping going forward. Congressman Katko, after the attack on the Capitol uh, on January sixth, we're hearing about another potential demonstration by that same crowd later on this month. 
They're calling it Justice for J6. Uh, September 18th, I think, is the date. I wonder if, if that's a threat you're taking seriously. But more, more general, how are you balancing the threat of domestic terrorism with threats from abroad? Which are you more worried about? Well, I think that they're intertwined. Um, and, I, you know, there's some uh, domestic terrorism that's uh, completely uh, organic from, from the U.S. And there's also domestic terrorism that's incited from, from afar. And so let's talk about the, ones that are the domestic ones first. Uh, the January 6th uh, uh, folks and in 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 what's going to come up is protest September 18th. Take it very seriously, especially given the fact that we had a colossal failure of uh, intelligence gathering and acting on the intelligence that we had on January 6th. We can't let that happen again. They're not going to. The fences are going up. Uh, security's on high alert. And uh, we're going to be better, better prepared. Mm-hmm. But what's more difficult, which is a real needle in the haystack, is uh, what's going to happen once you have these terror groups, again, getting a foothold and metastasizing in Afghanistan is you're going to have their ability to really try and influence through media and the Internet and whatever to influence and incite homegrown violent extremism from afar. Uh, they did that with respect to San Bernardino. They did that with respect to the Pulse nightclub and several others in the recent uh, in our recent past. And uh, they being ISIS, for example, when they had a caliphate, they had a whole cyber uh, arm that really was focused on inciting violence in the U.S., and I fear that a similar arm could develop uh, within Afghanistan now that al-Qaeda is really all over Afghanistan, and al-Qaeda and the Taliban are buddies. That's very concerning to me. I'll tell you, uh, listening to you talk about threats from abroad and threats from within, and thinking back 20 years, all of these conversations, Congressman, seem to end with the same question, and that's about intelligence. If our intelligence apparatus isn't working, then the threat is too late. You are absolutely spot on. That's exactly the failure of 20 years ago. And it's why uh, leaving Afghanistan in the vacuum it is is such a disconcerting thing to me, because we don't have boots on the ground. And uh, I have a lot of faith in our intelligence community. But when you don't have boots on the ground, you have uh, you, you do have a lack of uh, actionable intelligence. And we are much better at that than we were 20 years ago, but still, uh, I don't believe in this over-horizon nonsense that we can deal with everything from afar. I don't believe that. Um, our assets that were in Afghanistan are lar- largely gone. Our ability to have uh, a working relationship with the Afghanis to root out terrorism is gone. Uh, we have no foothold there. And um, I also uh, think that they say that there's probably a significant amount of resentment given the fact that we abandoned them. They feel abandoned, and the some people that we left behind may be emboldened to, to join the bad guys. So there's a there's a real intelligence dynamic that is going on, a lack of intelligence dynamic going on in Afghanistan right now that everyone is watching very closely. And that, that, to me, is one of the biggest uh, game changers in a bad way for us that, that, I've, that I've seen in a while. What are you doing to mark the anniversary tomorrow, Congressman? Well, uh, I'm going to many events in town, um, uh, hopefully my motorcycle, because <laughs> uh, it'll be a beautiful day. But I, this whole week, my wife and I were in New York City, and uh, we went to Ground Zero. Um, we went to uh, the museum. We visited uh, uh, places like Squad 18, a small firehouse down in, in Manhattan, that lower Manhattan, that uh, has six firefighters per shift, generally, uh, generally, because it's a very small little firehouse. And they lost seven people on that day. Uh, and, that, you know, I visited with them. We had lunch with them. And uh, we visited a fire headquarters. We visited a police headquarters. And we wanted to let everyone know that, you know, uh, 
we're thinking of them and we're going to continue to work with them going forward. And uh, it's been a very solemn and very jarring week to, to relive a lot of that. We lost friends on that day, my wife and I, and like many others did. And uh, um, to see the survivors and to see people who lost loved ones, it's uh, it's very it's a very stark reminder. And perhaps the best thing we can get out of this weekend is to never ever forget and never let our guard down again. And that's what that's our mission at Homeland Security. Well, we appreciate that, Congressman Congressman John Katko, Republican from New York, ranking member on the House Homeland Security Committee. We'll be thinking about you tomorrow. Come see us again soon on Bloomberg Radio. You got it, my friend. You take care. And that sets us up to talk with our panel as we spend this hour with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. They'll be up next with insights on the evolving threat from within and without and how the U.S. is facing it. Sound On is brought to you by Barish and McGarry, lawyers for the 9-11 community. For 20 years, they've been fighting for those who continue to get sick from 9-11 toxins. Free health care and compensation are available. Visit 911victims.com. Stay with us. We'll check traffic and the markets next and then the panel. This is Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us for the fastest hour in politics as we focus today, this eve of the anniversary on what we've learned the past 20 years and how the threats against America are evolving. With that, we assemble the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Thanks to both of you for being here. We're going to talk a little bit later about the anniversary itself and some of our memories here. But I want to start with where I just left off with Congressman Katko. Talked about an increase in chatter since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. He described would-be terrorists as feeling more invigorated. While the threat may not be specific, Rick, how concerned are you about the external threat? We'll start with the external threat facing America. And did we just make it worse? Yeah, I think uh, Congressman Katko really made a great point, which is uh, we, we have this external threat and, and it's out there. Whether it's worse or not, it's hard to determine. I think that the immediacy of the withdrawal from Afghanistan won't be reflected in a growth in al-Qaeda for some time. But we, we still have issues. Uh, with organizations there that actually just performed terrorist attacks upon our troops uh, in, in the last two weeks. So, sure, uh, I think the external threat is real. I do think part of what I thought Congressman Katko said, which I thought was really important, is that it, the 9-11 Commission, uh, uh, chaired by uh, stalwarts like uh, uh, Tom Kane, uh, did a great job of identifying where the holes were in our analysis of intelligence uh, that we had. And, and so those things should be better uh, able to be prepared against. But like, I, I, I really think that, that the idea that um, uh, Afghanistan's withdrawal is going to pose an immediate threat to the United States is, is, is a bit much. But I definitely agree with the congressman that uh, we, we have to find new ways to deal with that emerging threat because we know al-Qaeda and, and, the, uh, and the Taliban are, are in league. And so it's just reasonable to think that al-Qaeda will flourish under Taliban rule. Jeannie, the ranking member of the Homeland Security Committee in the House just tells us that he does not buy the so-called over-the-horizon approach that we've been talking about as pursued by the Biden administration following our withdrawal. Not that we haven't done this before, but does that concern you about the White House's plans when, when the top Republican on Homeland Security says it won't work? 
It does, because I think that the the idea is that you are going to be able to gather the same amount or, you know, hopefully better intelligence when you're not on the ground strikes many people as very, very difficult to do. Um, so I do think that that is a real concern. Um, I also think the representative made a really important point about our vulnerability to cyber threats. Um, th that that has increased. I mean, the reality is since we were attacked on 9-11, the nature of the threats against the United States have changed and morphed and evolved in really significant ways. Um, you know, one thing I'm just doing research on has to do with how vulnerable our electric grid is. Now, many people don't connect that to issues of security, but the U.S. government estimates if we had a significant disruption of our electrical grid in a year 90 percent of the u.s population would die because so much of our life is contained in that grid so our vulnerabilities are dramatic and our ability to combat terrorism from abroad and domestically is uh, you know not nearly what it should be by most estimations let's talk about the internal threat here rick i was in the capitol building today you spent a lot of time in that building the fences are going back up now, we understand, ahead of the events planned for September 11th. They're calling it the Justice for J6 rally, uh, threatening or promising whatever word I should use to to free the, the political prisoners, as they describe them, who were arrested uh, following the, the insurrection. Could January 6th happen again? Are you worried about this? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I got to believe the head of the FBI, the head of the CIA, uh, the, the law enforcement officials of our country have said uh, for years that the biggest threat to the homeland is domestic, uh, domestic terror. And, and why wouldn't we believe that? We mm -hmm. saw it happen on January 6th, and yet we still reject the idea that we need to examine and have a commission on January 6th to understand better what those failures of intelligence were. I mean, it was just such a stark interview you did with Congressman Katka, who was recounting how much we've learned and how we've been able to create new institutions as a result of the 9-11 uh, commission. Right. And yet today, there's still a fierce debate as to whether we should have a commission that studies the latest attack on our homeland. It's incredible, uh, Jeannie, when you think about this, not much has been done to secure our capital since that day. That's right. And, and, you know, while they are debating, you know, we are not getting the necessary congressional investigation to determine the greatest threat to our capital in, in, you know, hundreds of years, you know, how that occurred, why it occurred, and what we could do differently. And we, we need to remember, we talk, obviously, and importantly, a lot about January 6th, but threats to domestic terrorist threats go back many, many years, if not a decade or more, mm -hmm. and they have been serious. They are connected to everything from the Fort Hood shooting and massacre, um, you know, to the attempt, uh, you know, the bomb hidden in, in the underwear on Christmas Day, all of those were connected to domestic terrorism. And so those threats are real and they have been deadly, you know, the Orlando, the Pulse nightclub among them. So we've had a, you know, a long time to start to address these. And it's frustrating that after January 6th, so little support for that. Yeah, for sure. The panel stays with us for the hour. Rick and Jeannie will be back. Of course, we all remember Oklahoma City is what closed Pennsylvania Avenue outside the White House. Coming up, we talk with Mark Schweikert, the former governor of Pennsylvania. Stay with us on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. So many people were called to duty in so many different ways following the attacks on September 11th, including our next guest as we prepare to speak with the former governor of Pennsylvania, Mark Schweikert, who was sworn in as the 44th executive on October 5th, 2001. Yeah, it was just weeks later. Following Governor Tom Ridge's appointment by President George W. Bush to head the brand new Office of Homeland Security. We'll speak with the governor coming up next. I'm sure you're thinking about where you were that day 20 years ago. As so many of us recall the events of September 11th, my own memories are right here in the nation's capital, but everyone has their own story. Not just the story about what they were doing that day when they heard the news, saw the images for the first time, but also when they went home that night. And the President of the United States addressed the nation from the Oval Office. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. President George W. Bush, who we understand, along with the former First Lady, will spend tomorrow in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We'll visit the Flight 93 National Memorial. September 11th, 2021, he will deliver remarks during the observance ceremony. And our commander-in-chief now will be there as well, as President Joe Biden plans to visit all three sites. And that's a place that means a lot to our next guest. For a lot of reasons. The former governor of Pennsylvania, Mark Schweikert, is with us now. Governor, thanks for being with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. I know this might be a little bit difficult, for it is for so many of us. But you were lieutenant governor that day. And when Tom sure. Ridge went to Washington, called by... President Bush, you became the 44th governor of Pennsylvania before you were called to duty and rose to the corner office, as it were. What did you do that day? What, what was the first phone call you got that morning? Well, it was a series of phone calls, Joe. In Pennsylvania, in our administration, while Tom was the gov, uh, you know, I was the, the chair of, of a, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Council, which, which was a you know, an essential planning and deliberative body and operational in nature. So, so to speak, I was the top executive in emergency response. So relative to the incoming calls and that morning, I mean, we all remember the hard pictures and, you know, the American airliner hitting the North Tower, the United mm-hmm. Airliner hitting the South Tower at 9.03, then the next airliner hitting the Pentagon and, and then uh, tracking Flight 93 in its errant ways. Uh, before it crashed into the western Pennsylvania hillside. So as far as 
uh, our emergency operations center in Pennsylvania is 24 and 7. And the first phone call came in about uh, the initial impact. Uh, then the national defense protocol kicked in after Flight 175 at the South Tower, and, and I returned to the Capitol. Uh, so call one was about uh, what we all saw, the, the puzzlement of that first plane hitting, and then realizing that this was going to be a, a breathtakingly violent day when uh, 175 hit the South Tower. And and then en route, uh, as we talk about incoming calls, uh, mm-hmm. I was live uh, with the Cleveland Center, the FAA, as they were trying to raise uh, uh, Flight 93. And that call did not last long, as the, the world knows, and certainly Americans know that it went down in the field just before 10 a.m., uh, less than an hour after uh you know, the, the the South Tower was hit. So it was a raucous, demanding uh, hour, uh, many, many phone calls, and really just to initiate Pennsylvania's deployment uh, yeah. to support other states. Initially, uh, I'll add this, Joe, and, and then back to your, your thoughts, is, is the first non-New York State urban search and rescue team on the pile in, in southern Manhattan at the Towers, uh, the collapsed towers, that is, uh, was Pennsylvania. So we were in assistive mode, but quickly we had our own challenge uh, when Flight 93 crashed in uh, to Shanksville. How long did it take for that to make sense? Uh, There was obviously a great concern. We'll never know for sure. But that that plane was supposed to be headed for Washington. Could have been the Capitol, could have been the White House. A lot of people think it was headed straight for the Capitol Dome. Uh, Then suddenly it lands, crashes in your backyard. Well, I think... You know, most of you listeners know the nation's map, and, yeah. you know, the Flight 93 originated at, at uh, Terminal A, Gate 17, at Newark International Airport, uh, and headed west is an important parenthetic thought. You know, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the, the, you know, bloodthirsty killer uh, that he is, uh, who led the conspiring terrorists. Uh, you know, they were, they were dastardly enough to, they wanted long flights with plenty of fuel to cause the conflagration that we all saw. So the Boston flights uh, were headed for L.A., the Flight 93 was headed for San Francisco, and uh, so the point being that uh, this all transpired in, in the span of under uh, two hours. And for, for my role, uh, it was a general quarters challenge uh, situation in in that uh, you know the, the the three planes had gone down and it was en route back to the capital before I boarded a helicopter to return to the capital quickly uh, and that rendezvous that, that uh, in parallel was the Cleveland Center of the FAA trying to raise flight 93 and that call ended with uh, me being informed that we think it's down and likely in western Pennsylvania. So t- t- the point being, it went from our assistive role, yeah. perhaps to these other jurisdictions, to we've got a deployment and recovery operation in uh, Somerset County, Pennsylvania. What was going through your mind when you were called to the higher office? You understand suddenly that Tom Ridge is going to Washington to start this new department called Homeland yeah. Security. What kind of pressure, what kind of feelings were you going through? Well, I'd say, Joe, and, and, and it was one of uh, complete confidence in our team, uh, not my team. I've often said that you know Tom Ridge and I are uh, very close, and even governmentally, 
Uh, he often talked about, you know, his lieutenant governor was going to do heavy lifting and would be involved uh, intimately every step of the way, which meant, you know, I had complete feel uh, and command of our pursuits and agenda. And so I kind of use a football metaphor, Joe, was, was that, yeah, the quarterback was going to change, but our offense was not. You know, we had Tom and I were comfortable and had mastered it. And, uh, you know, we wanted a smooth succession. So uh, and to that point, not one cabinet member left because it was a commitment to the people of Pennsylvania first and to Ridge Schweiker uh, concurrently. So the two of us. And so uh, my outlook was uh, one of being sober about the role and the challenge uh, and and uh, also honoring, so to speak, the writers of our state constitution, which wanted a smooth succession. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, you know, I was mindful of that. And, and so was Tom. So the word had gone out, you know, the first team was staying other than our chief of staff, uh, who went down with Tom to, uh, unearth and, and, and stand up that new uh, Homeland security unit. And, uh, we had work to do here, uh, and, and not just in an in operational level to support the forensic and law enforcement work that was underway in Somerset County. It was also to be out and about and to engage the, the, the residents and citizens of Pennsylvania, because as you mentioned in your opening remarks, the, the sense of being overrun, of feeling vulnerable and grief was strong. And at that point, uh, you know, on a psycho-emotional level, it's the governor's job to be out and about and, and to say, we're going to get through this. We're going to power through. And and part of that means you you know you're not going to sit in the Capitol in a cozy in a cozy chair. You, you got work to do out in the field. And so, right. as soon as I took the oath, I had ten days on the road, and and it included you know saying thank you to first responders, acknowledging that urban search and rescue team, all Pennsylvanians that went up there, and many and some of them have died since. Uh, and 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 more than that, uh, it was also to calm the nation because we had people making the mental leap that. You know, the, these American-hating terrorists were somehow only of the Muslim faith. That's just not accurate. And it was to say that, you know, there are good uh, uh, religious-minded uh, members of mosque who are America lovers. And, you know, that's not where we're going to go as a state. And let's keep ourselves calm and centered. So a, a variety of, of fronts that most governors never experience because— Think about it. This is the, the 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 second bloodiest day brought on by air attacks on foreign on U.S. soil in the history of our country. So, no governor would you know we were kind of you know making decisive moves on the fly. I never do this, Governor, but we're we've got to cancel uh, a scheduled commercial break because I I can't stop this conversation. It's too important. And I want to ask you, you know, this stuff transcends politics. I want to ask you, Governor Schweiker, about uh, an op-ed that you wrote. It's time for America to put the 9-11 mastermind on trial. Uh, this was a couple of months ago, but it, it, it's, it's hitting home today. As you write, two decades ago, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was plotting the terror attacks that would murder thousands of Americans on September 11th. Terror cells were inside our country. America had no idea what was to come when they boarded airplanes that morning. Why has he not been brought to justice? Well, some legitimate reasons, like the pandemic, which uh, President Biden had uh, 
mentioned uh, late winter of this year. Uh, and some hard to understand, Joe, to be candid. Uh, you know, this is all every administration had reasons not to be aggressive. Uh, and so I, I was motivated uh, 100 days after uh, President Biden had, had reached that 100th day in the White House and, so to speak, wanted to provide a, a, a provocative reminder that, that justice awaits. And often I had, and I do know many, many families. I spoke to Debbie Bodley, who, whose daughter, Deora, was the youngest passenger on Flight 93. She would have, she'll be 40, she would have been 41 tomorrow. And she was 21 that day. Uh, amazingly so, had opted for standby status and boarded the late departing Flight 93 and, you know, to her death. And part of that freedom-loving group that took on the terrorist uh, aboard Flight 93. Mm-hmm. So they want justice. They want accountability. They want this aired. And the, the jihadi, uh, jihadi terrorists, uh, especially Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, have to be called called to account. I I think the way your listeners should ponder this is that, and this happened in the northern provinces of Afghanistan, which are now back in the hands of the very people that gave sanction to uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Osama bin Laden in 1997. And it's in that stretch of years between 1997 and 2000 that the notion, the conceptual idea, and too many people talk about Osama bin Laden, he was merely the financier, the mastermind. Uh, and conceiving the idea of commandeering these airliners was KSM. And he is a bloodthirsty killer. And, he, you know, by his own admission, uh, that he wanted blood on the streets of the United States of America. So if, and if I had said to anyone listening to your show that there's someone that's contemplating an attempt at, pre- at bringing about the demise of every man, woman, and child living in Palo Alto, California, you would say, we've got to stop them. Yeah. Well, uh, this is what's occurred. I mean, if you if you do the death toll, and I say this gently and respectfully, you know, almost 3,000 in one day, uh, thousands have died from that toxic milieu and atmosphere that was that was a part of the pile in Manhattan. They estimate it to easily be 10,000 soon because of aggressive cancers. They're taking the lives of the first responders. There are some who predicted to be as high as 400,000. That's how many had had labored there. Then you throw in, or add in, I should say, 7,000 in, in the war on terror. It is not being melodramatic to say that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wanted blood on the streets and to, and to, and to kill an entire city. Uh, th- this is his outlook. This was his, this was his MO. Yeah. And so f- to my way of thinking, and this is what makes it quite raw, uh, days after we lose 14 American fighting men and women, or 13, two weeks ago at, outside the Kabul airport, and add to that count that the trial is just now being restarted uh, based on the news of this past Tuesday. Pretty amazing. Knowing that, and to finish, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was apprehended in, in Afghanistan in 2003. He has been running be. free uh, up to that point. And sitting in at least 1,400 miles from Pennsylvania in Guantanamo Bay, it is time for the wheels to start rolling again toward justice. I know that's part of uh, your mission, Governor, and we'd like to think uh, that this is going to proceed. But I would encourage everyone to read the op-ed. It's from it's from May, May 20. You can Google it. 
Mark Schweiker, it's time for America to put the 9-11 mastermind on trial. Governor, thank you for your service to the country, and thank you for talking to me today. I appreciate Thanks, it very Joe. much. Good luck tomorrow with whatever Bye-bye. you're going to be doing. Tomorrow will be a special day, and in a lot of different ways, I guess, as people recall the events of 20 years ago. But it's really started t- today. Maybe it started days ago, uh, depending on where you hold this this date in your heart and the experiences that you have. But there's so many different moments, as we just spoke with uh, Governor Schweiker and remembering the events in Pennsylvania, as well as here in Washington. This is a moment from CNN. Yeah, if we can play this, a moment from CNN, as we were still in the fog, no idea what was going on. Remembering that moment that the governor just described, you heard about an airplane that was maybe headed to Washington. Former Senator John McCain was on CNN at this moment. Before actions are taken. I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you Senator McCain. These are the first pictures we have in. Uh, this is from Somerset County, Pennsylvania. This is where the United Airlines flight, I believe it is 176 went down. I'm sorry. I I correcting. United Airlines 93. This was a Boeing 757 bound from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco. It crashed in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, near the town of Shanksville. A lot of people learned the name of that town for the first time that day, I'd say most people. As John McCain was speaking about the threat against America on the phone at that moment, and we're joined again by the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Rick, that was your old boss there talking, and of course... The events that unfolded that day, he was he was in the Capitol as he was uh, witnessing everything we were all watching on TV. You were in town that day, too. Yeah, Joe, it was a it was a very uh, 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 incredible day that I'll remember for the rest of my life. It was actually Republican primary day in New York. I had been doing some work with Michael Bloomberg's first campaign from here. And uh, I was planning on hopping on a train and being there for the primary and uh, celebration of his nomination as the Republican nominee for for mayor. And uh, and I chose not to go because it was such an incredibly beautiful day. And I was in my office in Alexandria when uh, when John McCain called me uh, uh, shortly after that interview around uh, 930. Uh, saying he'd been ordered to evacuate the Capitol because they thought there were other planes that might hit the Capitol. Little did we know at that time, the one that was described, uh, United Flight 93, was the one that might have actually been uh, headed to the Capitol. And he scurried off uh, to one of his aides' uh, uh, flats in Capitol Hill and uh, checked in with me. And it just shows you the the lack of information that was, was happening. Everything we learned that day, we learned from the news media and uh, uh, I think caught all of official Washington uh, flat-footed. The the politics uh, were kind of dropped that day, Jeannie, because so many of us uh, were pulled out of the reality uh, that we thought we were living in. What did you recall from that morning? Well, that's right. Uh, You know, I I think that um, as I go into the classroom this year, we have freshmen and sophomores in our introductory classes who were not alive uh, during 9-11. about that? And, um, you know, this is a generation that didn't live through this personally. 
I'm in New York, so we get a lot of people who have family members and they hear a lot, and certainly we hope that they're learning about it in school. But it really cemented in me this year, as I think about it, the importance of trying to make sure that they learn the lessons from 9-11 and that we do a better job as educators teaching those lessons and as people in the community um you know i was on campus the day it happened we lost 15 alum we memorialize them every year um but it you know this year in particular is so striking because again at 20 years you've got a generation for whom this is something that they did not live through and the importance to them of making sense of it and uh, you know learning about it is all that much more critical today I want to note, uh, following Rick's comment, of course, Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent of Bloomberg Radio. I will say that I was in Washington uh, on that day in 2001. I was working in the National Press Building, uh, just uh, a block away from the Treasury, two blocks away from the White House, near Metro Center, if you've been a tourist in Washington. And as I emerged from Metro Center, took the subway to work that day, uh, the jets were just arriving. And the sound of fighter jets at a low level, and when we still didn't know what was going on, a lot of us thought, as people looked to the sky, that we were under attack by another country. Then we saw the smoke coming from the Pentagon. And I wonder, Rick, why so little is said about Washington, which was, of course, one of the three sites attacked that day, and, and some suggest that it's because it was not a civilian target, that the Pentagon was struck, a military installation, which just made it different. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I don't know. I think that um, I think that Washington had its own way of dealing with uh, a crisis like this. We tend to uh, uh, take the blow and, and and prepare to attack, which is exactly what we did. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the world and the nation was focused on the horrific uh, 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 sights and sounds of the fallen twin towers in New York. I, I don't think there was any other way to grieve. I mean, we had people we knew lost their lives in the Pentagon, and yet the focus was what happened in New York City, and it galvanized the world. Uh, it was a moment where everybody sort of put their emotions uh, out and said, you know, that they were grieving for those folks in New York, and mm -hmm. and so I think that it's just a matter of like, what did you focus on, and. Uh, uh, I know uh, shortly after that first day, I, I, second day, I went up to the Capitol to see Senator McCain, and, and I, it, it was like an armed camp. We had already deployed our forces, as you say. I mean, you would have thought our nation's capital had been under attack by a well-equipped foreign fighting force. Yeah, right. and, uh, and the only time I've ever seen anything like that, frankly, was right after the uh, insurrection at the Capitol on January 7th. A lot of people uh, invoked those memories on January, uh, well, I guess following the 6th, yeah. Inauguration Day, Rick. And I, my God, I'll, I'll never forget walking home up Connecticut Avenue that night. There were police cruisers at every intersection and not a car. And walking straight up the center line, there was no interruption as I walked up to my neighborhood from downtown Washington that day. It's something that we'll be thinking about tomorrow Jeannie, and I wonder, as we, of course, talk here on a political program, what the job is going to be for the commander in chief. President Biden speaks tomorrow. 
You know, I, I think his job, and, and this is something that he has proven to be particularly good at, is to be empathetic to all of those thousands of people who lost their lives, not just that day, but as the governor, I think so rightly mentioned, the, the, the people who went to the pile and who have lost their lives or been very sick as a result, and that number is still coming in in the thousands and thousands. And, of course, the people who died in the war on terror and people who are impacted in every way and continue to be. Um, I, I think he's got to be empathetic to the victims and their families. I think he's also has to be you know a leader in terms of how we are going to make sense of what happened and move forward what are those lessons we should take away how do we protect ourselves going forward i think he's got to do all of those things but number one i think he's got to be empathetic to the victims and unfortunately i think the president may encounter some resistance people yeah. who feel like getting out of afghanistan makes us more vulnerable and he's going to have to contend with that as well rick and Jeannie. Thank you for being with us. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.